Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Welcome to the January Atoms. Let's start by looking at some border issues. I digress slightly, but it's only when you really look closely at family cartological heirlooms, the yellowing atlases from the early 20th century, that the changes startle. Many of the outlines are familiar, late tectonics and continental outlines metamorphosing at a dawdle by comparison, but closer scrutiny of the borders takes you into alien territory. It's as if a giant eraser has been applied to scrub out the deceptively brittle barrier lines, colonial remnants sometimes from the bad old days and left spaces for refreshed a la mode versions. Yet there are still borders, each somehow epitomising territory, geographical, philosophical boundaries, each making a statement of both adherence to some tradition and each to the extent introverted. Having an open mind, the map is not the territory, said Alfred Korzybski. Let's talk about personal space. Any medical examination has the potential to evoke sensitivity, social, anthropological and clinical. The probability related in part to gender of the examiner and the examined and the age of the latter. Rebecca Moon and colleagues in Southampton study of and discussion around the perceptions of pubertal examination reopens the for long barely ajar door on this area, specifically the need or not for chaperones. The more male paediatricians were likely to request a chaperone for female examinations, this was far from universal. Not recording the name and title of the chaperone or reliance on parents as proxies was widespread. Not all adolescents, of course, want a menage à trois, previous work suggesting that preferences are bidirectional, but not providing at least the option is a clear risk of exposure. For many reasons, many with a degree of validity, barriers to implementing new screening programmes are daunting. Fulfilling the criteria, reasonable prevalence, treatability, predictive value, acceptability and so on, is arguably the easy bit. Human behaviour being the innately conservative beast it is, results in changes at policy level, being inevitably stodgy, I guess. Well, near inevitably. Pandemic accelerated change in vaccine policy being the outlier, at least recently par excellence. But I digress as always. What happens when your index illness is at the soonest, some time off on the horizon line? Owen Bender and colleagues in Oxford think potential early identification of type 1 diabetes risks at birth is a priority. So they describe the background to and success of the UK Ingrid Diabetes Genotype Susceptibility Study. They base it on the prevalence that certain polymorphisms disrupt T-cell mediated immune self tolerance early in life. And in the case of type 1 diabetes, this manifests as insulin antibodies. They sought to test the acceptability and predictive value of piggybacking an additional multiple polymorphism spoke to the neonatal blood spot. They achieved a remarkable 70% uptake, around 15,000 enrolled diets, and a 1% pickup rate later. I can't help but feel that this particular line on the map isn't perhaps entrenched as some of its predecessors have been. A half full or half empty bottle. 
what can only be described and lauded as a courageous study by all involved, Elizabeth Henderson and colleagues in Glasgow used erythrocyte membrane-bound phosphatidylethanol PAE as a marker for maternal alcohol intake in the weeks leading up to delivery. Why is this important? Hasn't the horse already bolted by the time of delivery, you ask? Well, no, not necessarily. There are implications both in early diagnosis that current genetics can't better for faster intervention and for intervention to both born and yet-to-be-conceived siblings. There are alternative markers which have been tested with varying success, such as maternal blood, urine, hair, pore sensitivity, and meconium fatty acid ethyl esters and ethyl glucuronide, which are sensitive but non-specific, and therefore all limited predictably and logistically. So the analysis in this study was rather like the Ingrid diabetes study undertaken on routine day five blood spot cards and validation made against the gold standard of self-reported late pregnancy alcohol intake. The reality is there isn't a better one. In this particular arena, that's as good as it gets, especially when the return rate is close to 100%. The bottom line, however, was that neither the modest or moderate cutoffs performed well at least not at the levels where this could be recommended as a screening tool. The idea, though, using the spots, is admirable and has now proven to be practical. And the study, yet more fuel to my negative stroke null studies, as useful, no, I say more useful, but I would say that, wouldn't I? Sticking to boundaries and so on. So what happens when boundaries are really stripped away? Alan Rogel from Charlottesville and others from the USA, although aptly maybe from Médecins Sans Frontières, albeit not the actual organisation, informs us of the history of insulin treatment. In the early 20th century, it was known that type 1 diabetes was caused by the lack of some factor originating from the pancreas. It took what we would now call a multidisciplinary team of a surgeon, medical student, physiologist and biochemist based in Toronto to isolate a pancreas substance and then in 1922 also treat a 14-year-old boy who lived until his 27th birthday. This is not the full story of the beginning, obviously, as there had been previous attempts at isolating insulin. There's also something about borders here. A Romanian scientist, Dr. Nicolae Palescu, had developed a pancreatic extract in 1916 that had reduced blood glucose in a dog. The Toronto group referenced his paper, published in 1921. World War I, of course, got in the way, as did an appreciation of the efficacy of this extract, potentially because of a mistranslation. But borders, too, may have got in the way here. We're now in the era of closed-loop insulin delivery of our smart pumps. Early detection is early discussed and contemplating beta cell replacement and gene therapy. Borders with barriers still remain, as there are many children across the world who do not have access to state-of-the-art diabetes treatment. That's work still to be done. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out the podcast and other content on the journal website, adc.bmj.com and access the podcast on the usual appliances and platforms. Have a good week ahead. We'll speak to you again very soon. Bye for now.